Sometimes things don't go as we planned them to go. Sometimes life is about being diverted. Some of us would say amen to that. God's timing and plans often differ from what we would have planned, and diversions happen. Last week, we celebrated the 15th, I say celebrate, excuse me, we remembered the 15th anniversary of September 11th, and last week, as we were hanging out at the house, my wife was reading a story to me uh, about uh, a place called Gander. Uh, Gander is in Newfoundland, uh, Canada, and uh, on September 11th, there were planes in the air that day that suddenly got diverted. And 38 airplanes were diverted to a town called Gander. Some of you guys maybe have heard this story. There's even a, a movie that was put out in 2009 called uh, Diverted or Diversion. I, forget, I think it's Diverted. Um, about what happened that day. And so here's our world really here in America turned upside down. A lot of confusion with the great tragedy that happened. And in the air, planes were being diverted, and Gander became a place, a town of about 10,000 people, and all of a sudden, they doubled in size with what they now call the plane people that arrived there, some 38 planes and nearly uh, seven to 10,000 people now in their town. And the story goes like this. For four days, Gander and the surrounding cities opened up their houses, opened up high schools, opened up different facilities for these plain people that were from uh, all over the world, many obviously going back to America. And here they find out the great tragedy that has happened. They're away from their family, and here they are in Gander and surrounding cities. Gander, full of compassion, love, opens up their homes, even putting their high schoolers into service calling them away from school. They canceled school, opened these buildings, and had high schoolers serving and helping. They were giving free prescriptions, filling those as people needed them, uh, giving meals, and you name it. And so impacted by their stay there, even some um, plain people on their way back decided that they would start a fund, a trust fund for those high schoolers. And today, nearly well over millions of dollars have been raised to give scholarship to those very high school students who helped serve the plain people on that day of September 11th. See, these people, planning going back home, seeing their family and friends, were diverted. And the world turned upside down on that day. For those four days, the, turn, the, the world was turned right side up there in that little town, full of compassion opening their doors and opening their hearts to people they didn't even know. Isn't it amazing what God does in a world full of messes, in a world at times full of confusion, turned upside down? He goes and he turns things right side up. And today, that's what we see. Today's text is that. The Apostle Paul and Silas have been shipped out from Antioch, the second mission, missionary journey. And Paul and his buddy Silas, they pick up Timothy along the way. Dr. Luke is with them also, the one who's writing Acts. And they journey. And as they journey, they're told not to go to Asia. They're told not to go to another place. But yet, a vision comes to Paul. And in this vision, a man says, come to Macedonia." And so they're diverted in their journey, and they're called to invade Europe, literally, with 
the gospel. And so what we see today is literally the invasion of Europe with the first um, act of evangelism, of bringing the gospel to this area, to this great place called Europe. That's where Macedonian is, and that's where Paul and them are called. Jesus said this in John 10, 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Paul and his companions, as they traveled to Macedonia, that was their mission, that God had sheep. They're not part of this fold to now bring them and make them a part to be together with this one shepherd, Jesus Christ. That's what God's mission was about. That's what Paul and these guys were about. And so today, I want to encourage us in our witness to not be complacent, but to continue being about bringing other sheep that God has out there into the fold. Because that's what God is about. And we see that new work in Europe this morning as these guys are going to put out and sail that way. And so let me pick up verse 11 if we could. It says this, putting out to sea from Troas. We ran straight course, as Luke is writing, to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. So Paul and his crew, they travel some 130 miles by boat and by foot from the city of Troy now to Philippi. And this city has no idea what's about to hit them as it is about to be turned upside down and individuals' lives turned the right way up for the kingdom of God. And so in verse 13, it begins, it says, the Sabbath day and they were outside the city gate to a riverside or next to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And so the beginning of the planting of the gospel in Europe begins here with these women that are beside this river. An interesting note here is Paul, when he would visit cities, where would he usually go? Do you remember what would Paul usually do? He would go to a synagogue, right? He'd go to a synagogue, and there he would teach. Well, why does he go to this riverside and said, well, in Philippi, there was no synagogue, uh, which is interesting. If you think about a synagogue, a synagogue would be placed in a city where there would be 10 Jewish men who were heads of households, and so every city that had that, there would be a synagogue. And in this case, what this means is the Jewish faith is not present. It's, It's not big there, and so there's no synagogue there. And so these women are beside a river, and they're praying together, Gentiles, and it seems, and we'll just see this in a second, that they have found something in, yes, the Jewish faith, Judaism, that that appeals to them, or they're attracted to, and so they're seekers. They are seeking God the best they know how. And so that's where Paul and his crew begin this ministry, they sat down with them and began to speak to these women. Now, before we continue on this morning, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that God has given us, as those who believe in Christ, a witness. A witness to take this world and help turn it right side up for the kingdom of God. As we look at that today, that's what's going to happen in Europe. And as we do, what we're going to see is man has a problem. It's universal And second, not only that, that there is a unique solution to that problem. 
And then third, the witness of the church, which is so needed, both here, as we're going to see this day, but even in our day. We're going to see the results of that witness and the effects of it. And hopefully at the end of the day, I, I pray we're encouraged to know that the same power that was, was at work here in Europe, bringing the gospel, is still present today and at work. God wants to work and move just like he did in the lives of these that are going to have their lives turned right side up. And so look at verse 14. We find out the name of one of these women and what happens to her that are by the river there. And it says in verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, and she was listening. And, and we'll pick up there in a second. But you have Lydia, this, this lady who's no doubt an immigrant to Philippi, who was a wealthy businesswoman, made her money in the selling of purple dyed fabrics. And she was a Gentile. And she recognized something in the Jewish faith that appealed to her. It was attractive to her. And that's why she's there, gathered on the Sabbath day, praying. And so what do we find out about her? She's, she's seeking She's seeking God, best she knows how at this point, not a believer, obviously, in Jesus Christ, but she is seeking. She's a seeker, a wealthy woman. Now, before we continue on, I want us to think about Lydia for a second, and we're going to see this with a young girl, a slave girl. We're going to also see it with a jailer, a city employee. And what we're going to see about them is, is that they represent something that is present in all the world. Present in this room today. It's a universal problem that we all have no matter where we're from. No matter what class we're a part of. Uh, no matter what our bank account looks at. No matter what kind of job we have. Whether it's a, a wealthy businesswoman in this case. Whether it's one who's being tormented or possessed by a demon with the girl that we're going to see in just a second. With a city employee. It doesn't matter. The problem is universal. And the universal problem is simply this. And, and I'll quote John Stott to kind of give us kind of a different flavor this morning. Listen to what Stott says. He says, evil is unfortunately inherent in all of us. And therefore unavoidably a part of any culture we create. You see, you and I, were created by God, yes, but have been corrupted by sin. As much as we would like to deny that fact, our nature constantly, though, demonstrates that. Stott also says this in his writing, Why I Am a Christian. He says, think about man. We are able to think, we're able to choose, we're able to create, we're able to love, we're able to worship. But at the same time, we're able to hate, we're able to covet, we're able to fight, we're able to kill. Human beings are the inventors of hospitals for the care of the sick, of universities for the acquisition of wisdom, and churches for the worship of God. But they have also invented torture chambers, concentration camps, nuclear arsenals. This is the paradox of our humanness, Stott says. We're both noble and ignoble. We're both rational, irrational, both moral and immoral, both creative and destructive, both loving and selfish, both godlike. And be style. Although God has created you and I, in his image, we've rebelled. We've rebelled in our independence. We all, as Paul says in Romans 3, 20, uh, 12, have turned aside to what? To ourselves. We've all turned aside to self. The essence of what the Bible calls sin is this exaltation of self. God has created us to put him first, others next, and then ourselves. But what has... Sin come and done. Flip that right uh, upside down. 
where we put ourselves first, then others, and then somewhere, if anywhere, in the distant background, we put God. As a result of sin, we become a slave to sin, working in our lives in small ways and big ways. And as a result, we stand guilty as those before God, and we deserve eternal death, living separated from God forever because we have denied the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. We cannot remove the reality of this guilt before God. And that's the universal condition of man. It's the condition of Lydia. It's the condition of the two others that we will read about. They stand guilty. But in a moment, what we're going to see is their worlds get turned right side up. Their worlds get changed with a unique solution. And it's unique. It's the only solution. Look what happens in verse 14 and 15. She was listening, Lydia was, back by the riverside. And who is she listening to? The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. No doubt by the riverside, what is Paul sharing? Sharing the gospel. Probably opening up the Old Testament and pointing to Christ through it, no doubt. And he's sharing it with these women. Maybe sharing his testimony, how God changed his life. And as they share by the water there, Lydia has the Lord open her heart to respond. What an important phrase. I want you to think about that. As we do, think about these verses. 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to what Paul says in verse 4 and verse 6. He says, The God of this world, the enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so that's what happens here. God takes the initiative. And Lydia then responds as a result of God's working in her heart, God opening her heart. You see, God is the God of salvation. He's the one who saves us. He opens our eyes. He opens the eyes of our heart. It's not something we do. He takes the initiative, and he causes Lydia to respond with faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the way, he's the truth and the life. He's the only unique solution to our problem. No man comes to the Father, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, except through him, through Jesus alone. He's that unique solution to the world's universal problem. He bore our sin, he bore our guilt on the cross, paying the price for it once and for all. He rose from the grave on the third day, victorious over death in the enemy. And in this moment, Lydia has her heart open to the reality of God who saves through Jesus. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And Lydia is led to respond and believe in the message that Paul shares. But not only her, but with her household. It's very interesting, very interesting. There's been much debate over the years of Different phrases like this, we're going to see it in just a second with the jailer as well. But I think this is significant. I think Lydia was greatly respected 
by those in her home. Who could this be? Many believe that probably she was a widow, not for sure. Some believe this could be speaking of her children. Could also most likely be speaking of servants in her home. She's a wealthy lady. Whatever the case is, those in her home also believe. I think what it does tell us as well, it tells us that Lydia's not ashamed. She's not ashamed of the gospel. She's not ashamed of Christ. Jesus tells us this, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. Lydia's not ashamed of Jesus. She has a great testimony even in this moment. She's baptized. Her house is baptized. Baptism back there, back then, met just as it does today, this statement that Jesus is Lord of my life. That's what it meant. Proclaiming Jesus is Lord. That's what baptism is. Baptism, I'm just kind of going to go on a soapbox for a moment. Today, it's not as magnified, I think, in we see in the New Testament, but baptism is significant, not for salvation, but in the sense of obedience, that we as believers, when we are saved, the Bible, we see in Matthew 28, that Jesus has commanded the church to go and to baptize those who believed in Christ, to go and baptize them. And so what that means for you and I, that we are to stand when we have trusted in Christ, we're to stand and say, Jesus is Lord through the act of baptism. And that's what Lydia does. Um, it was known back in these days. We saw it with the Ethiopian eunuch earlier in Acts. We're going to see it even with the jailer. Baptism was the mark. It was the mark of the new covenant that said, Jesus is Lord of my life. It was a statement. And Lydia and her household make this statement on this day. So much so, she has changed that it says here, if you have judged me, or since, or because you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And so she shows the fruit of hospitality immediately. Now, what's amazing about this is you have the birth of the church at Philippi right here. And so as you read this today, I want you to think of the letter of Philippians, because Paul will later write to this church that's now birthed on this day. We'll see the fruit of this church in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 4, as this church will become an example of generosity to the saints in need in Jerusalem. They will give graciously. It begins all right here with Lydia. And then look what happens next. It happened in verse 16 that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. What is most likely on another Sabbath day, Paul and his crew come to this place of prayer again, and as they were walking, this girl meets them on the road, and it becomes a daily occurrence as they go to this place. This girl who was a slave, probably most likely a Gentile as well, possibly a resident of Philippi, though some slaves would have been imported during that day. She was on the opposite side of the end of the spectrum of Lydia. 
that she owned nothing, not even herself. She was in double bondage. She was enslaved to this spirit of divination, to this demon. And she was also exploited by her masters as a slave as well. As they made great profit off of her. As she would be a fortune teller. You see, back then, it was believed that one of the spirits back then was Python and was related to the, the god of Apollos. And so Python was the spirit that, I mean, believed if you had this spirit, this uh, definitely of the enemy, but in Greek mythology, if you had this spirit, you could tell the future. And so that's what they believed about this girl. And they would use her and exploit her to make money off her. And so this girl was tormented, no doubt. Taken advantage of, psychologically affected, no doubt what you would call spiritual pimps back then. That's what they were. And then you have, though in a moment, this slave girl's life turned right side up, right? Look at verse 17, what, what happens here? She was following after Paul day after day and Silas as they're going to this place of prayer. And what was she saying? These men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. So, so even though demon-possessed, what, what's being proclaimed here is true, right? In this public announcement, it, it's true. And then she continued to do that for many days. And then it says Paul is annoyed by this and tells the demon in the name of Jesus Christ, commands it to come out, and it came out. So here's a question. Why is Paul annoyed? Is it just simply because, hey, listen, every day you're just bugging me? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, one, people knew that this girl had this spirit of, of python, this spirit of divination, this demon or a cult activity that she was part of that. They, they knew that publicly there. And so Paul didn't want Christianity to be associated with the occult. And so no doubt he takes a stand and he calls that demon out. I think also, though, Paul passing this girl every day, knowing that she had to be tormented psychologically, enslaved to sin, no doubt, enslaved to the power of the enemy, his heart broke, and he hated it. You see, God, Paul hated the enemy. He hated the enemy. We need to hate the enemy. And he hated the enemy, and he hated the power the enemy had over this girl, and no doubt, in great love, he was like, I know Jesus can take care of this. And he commands, in the power of Jesus' name, come out, and Jesus causes the demon to come out immediately, immediately. God opened Lydia's heart. God takes and causes the demon to come out. I think it's safe to infer. It isn't active inferring on my part that this slave girl most likely comes to faith, most likely becomes a part of the Philippian church. I, I, I say that because of placement in between Lydia and the jailer that do come to faith. I think you can infer that, but it is an inferring act. But her life's changed just in that moment. 
But look what happens in verse 19. Her master saw that their hope of profit was gone. So just as this demon is gone, their money and their making of money is now gone in that moment. And they seized Paul and Silas as a result. They dragged them into the marketplace, which was the public place where everybody was, before the authorities, that's the policemen. When they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Now, they're saying being Jews here. I want you to understand, it's also the idea, they're promoting Judaism. That's what they're saying they're doing. That's important because of what they're claiming. And are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. And so these guys, man, their economy has totally been changed by this act of God. And they attributed it to Paul and Silas, and they're ticked. They're ticked. Because their business has just been wiped out, abolished in that moment. But what do they do? They're not telling the truth here. They don't drag Silas and Paul because of these issues. But what are the issues they're claiming against these guys? One, that they're pushing the Jewish religion. They're causing a riot, causing the city to be in confusion as a result. They're invoking a religious and political prejudice, claiming that these guys are anti-Rome. And anti-Rome at you'd be in trouble. But they never mention about the issue of their economy be affected. And so what we see here is the gospel is counterculture. It turns things right side up, getting rid of such exploitation that this girl was caught in the trap of. And it affects even economies that are especially evil. And so look what happens. The crowd rose up in verse 22 as a result against them as well. So the crowd gets involved as well. You're against Rome, we're against you is kind of the idea here. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he's going to go a little further. Look what he does. The jailer, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I think one thing we learn here is that the witness of the kingdom of God that turns the world right side up for Jesus Christ, it costs. It costs. As we see with the life of Paul and, and Silas as well and Timothy Dr. Luke, these guys, the cost was great, yes, but the gain for them is much greater. Paul will say in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whether in death or life, these guys wanted to honor Christ, even if it meant their backs being lacerated, bruised, and beaten. Even if it meant being treated like dangerous criminals by this jailer because this guy goes a step further. And so what about this jailer? I think we see about this guy. This is the third person I want you to see today is his attitude. He goes a step further. He puts them in the inner prison with the hardened criminals. Not only that, he puts their feet into these wooden stocks. And so here's this guy, probably middle of the road between Lydia and the, the slave girl, um, middle class type of dude. He works for the city, had no religious background of any sorts. 
and obviously had hate. Morally, he had issues. And look what happens. About midnight, verse 25 says, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is beautiful, isn't it? With painful backs and aching bones, they weren't cursing men, they weren't grumbling over their circumstance, but instead, what were they doing? They were praying, they were singing praise to God. I don't know what they were singing. It might have been a Crowder hit, like my victory, I don't know, maybe they knew it before we did. Maybe it's just now getting to us. Maybe it was how great thou art. I mean, who knows? It's not so much what they were singing, though. It was why they were singing. They were singing because they believed God was in control no matter what their circumstances were. They believed in the sovereignty of God and the working of God even in such moments of these. Even in the moment of false charges. They have hope. In God, whether in death, if it ends that way, or in life. And what a great witness. Think about that, guys. What a great witness we have when things around us are hard. Life's tough. When we go through trials. God takes those moments to, to shine through us, to, to shine to the world, to show the world, look at their hope. Even in suffering, even in tough circumstances, even in times of trials, God takes those and uses those as great opportunities to witness of his great love. And that's what these guys do. And these prisoners are listening to them big time. And I don't know the impact. I, I, I can assume some of the impact. It is amazing to think that some of these prisoners listening in could maybe eventually be a part of the church at Philippi. You never know but amazing. And then look at verse 26 and 30. Suddenly, in the midnight hour, as they're singing and praising, a great earthquake came. So that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Everyone's chains, all right? Paul, Silas, the other prisoners. When the jailer awoke, saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to take his own life, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice toward the jailer, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Wow. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, the jailer fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he asked them this question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is amazing, right? Lydia's heart is opened up by God. This slave girl has this demon commanded out of her in Jesus' name, and it comes out. She's released from the torment and then what does God do here? An earthquake. <laughs> An earthquake. He takes this earthquake and breaks the chains of the prisoners. But at the same time, breaks the heart of a jailer. Think about this guy for a second. In this moment, <laughs> his life's a mess, right? I mean, he's scared. Because there's a code, man, if, if your prisoners go running and, and, and you lose one of them, you die, right? 
And so he didn't want to face the punishment, humiliation of that. So he's going to take his own life. And so morally, he's just gripped here. He's gripped with fear. He's eventually, I mean, he's gripped with guilt. This is a mess. And he's a mess in his heart. Many today find themselves in situations like this with this jailer, confused. What do I do? Caught in fear, caught in guilt. This world we live in, many find themselves like the jailer. But I want you to know this truth. Jesus is reigning. He's reigning on earth, but the world is opposed to that reign. They're opposed to that reign in the here and now. His reign, yes, it will come. We believe that in fullness one day. And we wait for that, but until then, Jesus reigns as Lord through those who acknowledge him as Lord, having him rescue you and I, not just from particular messes like this and problems just like this, but rescuing our souls and hearts from its messes. So I love this right here. Paul and Silas answer the jailer's question. It's a great question. Listen to what he asked. How can I be saved? You see, he wants to be rescued. He wants to be rescued from the mess he's in right then. He wants to be rescued. Ultimately, he's going to find out from the mess his heart is in. How can I be saved? In verse 31, they give the only answer, the unique solution. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be rescued, you and your household. Isn't that amazing? You and your household. Isn't that amazing that Paul and Silas, they're thinking, you're going to have your, your world turn right side up. Not only that, your household is going to have the same experience. And what do they do? They go to the house of the jailer, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house. They set food before them, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So what does this guy do? He believes. He believes. The Bible tells us it's by grace through faith that we are saved. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in this moment, the jailer believes. His whole household believes, just like Lydia did in her household. And what's amazing about this, he takes Paul and Silas, he takes them there in his house, that very hour, this is after midnight, it's early in the morning, and what did he, what does he do? He washed their wounds. What is that? That's repentance, isn't it? There's no greater beautiful picture of repentance than this because his attitude before, throwing them in the inner prison, putting their feet in these wooden stocks, treating them as hardened criminals. When all the magistrates and policemen, what do they want to do? They want to put a little fear in these guys. These guys, this guy go, goes a different level, though. And so his heart is changed to now cleaning their wounds. That's what repentance looks like. His life is a wreck. It's a mess. 
But God turns it right side up. And now he's serving and in humility cleaning these two. And then, along with his household, they all believe and they were baptized. Just like Lydia. When we believe, we stand and we're baptized to say, yes, the Lord is Lord of my life, of my heart. And he celebrates with them. He feeds them early in the morning. I know our parents, still today we say this, right? Nothing good happens after midnight, right? Except in Philippi (laughs) on this day. And he serves them, right? I thought you only ate like at Waffle House at this time in the morning, right? But he serves them and feeds them, and a party goes on. But look what happens, and we'll close with this real quickly. I just want to see verse 35 through 40, because it, 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 it points to the significance of our witness in the city. And listen to what happens here. It says, now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying this, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying the chief magistrates have come to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have been beaten us in public without trial, and men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly. No, indeed, Paul says, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Interesting, Paul took much care of his witness. It was so important. You see, in the moment that Paul and Silas are taken in by the policemen, the chief magistrates, Paul could easily say, hey, listen, we're Romans. We deserve a public trial, and you cannot beat us, right? That was the rule. What would happen many times back then, though, is people that were anti-Rome would make that claim and say, well, we're, we're Roman citizens, and they would use that because they knew that was an out. What would happen a lot of times, though, is the Roman officials, is they would turn and kill those people because they knew they were lying. And so Paul knew that. He was very wise, he knew that. He wanted to protect himself, yes, physically, but also he knew that his suffering, his suffering would lead to the advancement of the gospel. Paul, a very wise guy, and even here at this last moment, he's like, but wait a second. We're not going to let our witness be hampered in the city because God's going to continue to do a great work. In fact, in Philippians, he said that what, what he's begun today, he, I'm confident he's going to continue it, and he does. And so it's important to him. So he takes the stand and says, wait a second. We are Romans. They're going to come out and get us and let it be known to them that we're not anti-Rome. Do we agree with the government? No. Paul would say, no way. I don't agree with how they treat people. I don't agree with all their customs. No. I don't agree with idolatry. I don't agree with all that. But we're not anti-Roman people. And so the police come and get them. And this is a very humbling scene. So much so, they want them out of their city. They want them gone. Paul takes his time. (laughs) They go to Lydia's house. And what I love about this is the brethren was there and they encouraged them. Now, who's part of that brethren group is no doubt Lydia. It's her home. Could it be the slave girl? I love to think so. 
Could it be the jailer in his household? I think that'd be cool. They're all part of the Philippian church now. Could it be some of those prisoners eventually that they were singing around? Man, I love to think that. Isn't that what God does, though? That's the power of the gospel. And here's the deal. That same power is alive today. It's alive today. And God wants to take those who have the Lord reigning in their heart, and he wants to turn this world right side up for the kingdom of God. He's still doing that today. He hasn't stopped. Let me pray with you.